Hi there, welcome to what we hope to be the first of many interviews on Blaze Explains. I'm going to talk today about ethics and ethics in AI coming off the episode we had recently where we spoke, spoke about the broad strokes of artificial intelligence in our daily lives and everywhere else around us in ways we notice and ways we don't in ever-increasing manners and methods. I'm going to break down a little bit about ethics themselves, how they function, and then we're going to move into various issues within artificial intelligence. And we'll also just sort of see where the conversation grows. I have someone with me today, Nusa Jabi. She just completed a postgrad course in neuroethics at the University of at the University of Oxford, but she has a lot of experience in AI startups, doing rather a lot actually. She was also, and tell me if I've got this right, the head of comms for Headlight.ai, and a digital consultant for Trees for Cities, a project manager for Lloyd's of London, and really has kind of a long, long list of achievements, has been a content manager, has also been a director, and she's on IMDb if you want to look her up, has l- quite a few key achievements in terms of putting together global strategies, just increase in online donations, 49% increase. I'm just looking through some of your stats. Basically, you're very good at the actual business end and the fundraising element here, but why don't I let you speak a bit more about yourself, Nessa? I think you've given me quite a long introduction. So thank you. And a pleasure to be on this. I look forward to your overview on ethics. I think it's an important area for all of us. I think people tend to think that it's something which perhaps one part of an organisation needs to take care of or that is relevant to an academic specialist. I think actually it's something that affects all our day-to-day lives and that applies every much every bit as much to tech companies and to the kind of innovation that we're seeing now. Totally agree. And, and you know, this came out really of a conversation we had separately and um, uh, on Lunch Club and, and, and felt like, well, we should really do a podcast about this and start recording it for everybody. But I will just jump right in for everybody. You know, what are ethics? Here's the definition from Merriam-Webster. It's a discipline dealing with what is good and bad and with moral duty and obligation. Now, I've studied it a bit. I think one of the issues that, w- that we certainly started to speak about in our initial conversation is we, we worry that the study of it has somewhat been neglected or has been so sanitized and really mollified that, that no one's asking themselves proper questions anymore and, and challenging themselves. And we see this often most poorly exhibited by tech companies. And it, it's sort of like they think they've given a good answer, but they haven't. It's not a simple thing, moral duty and obligation, ethics or not. And when you get into it, it is an incredible intellectual challenge, wonderfully, of course, rewarding in the fact that this is, this is how our souls operate. Ethics and moral philosophy is concerned with the question of how people ought to act in the search for the definition of right conduct and the good life. It's derived from the Greek word ethos. Ethics covers the following dilemma. How to live a good life, our rights and responsibilities, the language of right and wrong, moral decisions, what is good and bad. Philosophers nowadays tend to divide ethical theories into three areas, meta-ethics, normative ethics, and applied ethics. This is more for your food for thought as opposed to, and you know, feel free to try to go through what you see in your normal life and what you hear us discussing as to well whether that would be an instance of meta-ethics, normative ethics, applied ethics. So meta-ethics deals with the nature of moral judgment. 
the origins and meaning of ethical principles, those guiding principles obviously informing judgments that you make. Normative ethics is considered within the context of moral judgments and, and the criteria for what is right or wrong. Yeah, do you, do you, like, do you like that definition, is it? I would have to go with those. Mm. I think one of the things that I'm always very aware of is that there are so many cultural differences. So I think Quite. in terms of drawing a kind of absolute baseline, I think there are a handful of things, but I actually think it's a very small number of things that are considered absolutely wrong. So the extent to which, the extent to which it's actually, I think, very woolly. It changes across time. It changes across culture. It does change across circumstance and situation. I mean, it's yeah, certainly. Uh, the, the third one, applied ethics, looks at controversial topics like war, animal rights, and capital punishment, which I guess is is the extrapolation of of extreme circumstance. And then let's move into the concerns of AI. We've pulled out seven ethical issues actually highlighted on Cambria, ethical issues that they believe revolve around AI. And the first one here is, what if AI makes people lose their jobs? Second, and I'm just going to run through these quickly. What if AI makes people lose their jobs? What if AI learns the bad side of what we program it for? See, killing people, corporal punishment, always hot topics. We'll definitely talk a lot about this. What if AI goes rogue, just like in Terminator, which my staffers love mentioning? Keeping control over AI is also another what if moment. Do they beat us? Should we treat AI as a machine or something more humane? And finally, bias by AI. Bias by AI. Okay, so let's pull it back for a second and try to put a mi uh, micro microphone, micro microscope, but I meant the glass. What's that called? Looking glass. No, no, it's a magnifying looking glass. glass. Magnifying glass. Put a magnifying glass over all of these. What if AI makes people lose their jobs? Cambrius uh, cites a McKinsey report saying about 800 million people could lose their jobs due to AI by 2030. This raises concern whether a machine development should triumph over people's welfare. I have a hot take on this, but I want you to go first. I think the short answer is yes, people are going to lose their jobs. I think, I don't mean to be alarmist, but I think it's a lot like the Industrial Revolution. And while in terms of the analysis I know about, there are far more jobs now than there used to be in the past, and a whole variety of jobs that didn't used to exist, of course, we still have the fallout of the Industrial Revolution. In the UK alone, there are whole chunks of society that haven't recovered from the fact that manual labour isn't a huge sector anymore. So I think this is going to be a kind of version of that, possibly more intense because the speed of technology is so much faster. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it happens so quickly. It's sort of, you know, I, I think keeping people engaged is what's so crucial because, look, it's going to keep happening very fast. But by the same token, we will adapt to them very, very fast. And so what that means is, so I think you have to view AI as, right, the bar's now here. So industrial revolution happens, medical healthcare happens at the same time. The ability to mass produce and put out medical equipment, medical technologies, means that more people are alive now than ever. And a lot of them are employed, comparatively speaking. And what it means is that the jobs become slightly different or the way you apply yourself becomes slightly different. And a big one for this, I think, a good example is how they're putting AI for for that language generation, which I've mentioned many times, I mentioned the last one is, look, it just raises the bar for what a writer is expected to accomplish. If the AI can put together, can pull out the data, and that's, that just saves the writer a hell of a lot of time. They can go check it, but they can suddenly produce a hell of a lot more work, which is good for everyone, actually, because they're still applying themselves in the highest value thing that they can create that a computer can't. So it's a question of working in harmony. And while initially, of course, let's say someone engages that, well, some people will lose their jobs. Yes, but they could also be doing their other job at sort of triple the efficiency or something like that. So it is a question of how you how you interact with it. But 
I think one of the problems for me is the kind of jobs people are doing. So I think Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be arguing negatively here. It's just that I think a lot of the work now is not intrinsically meaningful in the way that it might have been in the past. So yes, there was more drudgery in the past. Yes, it was physically much more demanding. At the same time, I think there were whole swathes of the, for lack of a better term, the Western sector, where people Mm -hmm. know that their job isn't really of any great value. And that's very difficult. Well, that's very difficult because, I mean, it is difficult. You know, how do you as sort of a grandfather or a father or a mother, you know, not to I'm just tell your grandchildren that, well, most of what I'm telling you isn't really going to work because being a plasterer your whole life is just not something that I can, that you can reliably get that, 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 that you know, I can't guarantee you that's still going to be a job. So I can't really advise you on how you should behave in this, in this current market. It's like, Yes, you should learn to be a plasterer, but be aware that there may be a new plasterer or a new machine that's going to make that irrelevant soon enough. And then if that does happen, uh, you need to be ready to learn the next thing. And I think maybe not enough people are, are doing that. I'm hoping that, that they do for their own sake. Yeah, I think that's a really important yeah. point. I'm so in favor of education, access to education, high quality education. I don't think it's available for enough people by any stretch. And I think people mm-hmm. talk a lot about lifelong learning. If somebody doesn't have a good foundation when they're quite small, I think it makes that whole process more difficult, especially because for some people it feels like a kind of constant background pressure that they have to keep updating their skills, that there is probably going to be something that means they have to potentially have a radical career shift. There are people that enjoy that challenge. I think that in terms of adaptation, for the most, for the majority of people, yeah. I think it's slower. It's much slower. Oh, I think it's a brutal thing you've got to learn. I mean, I was thinking earlier today about about other reasons, but when I, so I, I studied magazine journalism when I was at university, I went to journalism school and I had already, I'd edited magazines, I'd really run them. And, but in terms of what I wanted to go with my, with my career, I knew that I had a lot more to learn, but I was worried that I wouldn't learn enough by doing just, just broadcast or just focusing on newspaper journalism. So I left all of that. I did magazine journalism. And then I went and I found a way and I ended up working in newsroom and learned all about newspaper journalism and, and then TV and w- learned all about broadcast journalism, just like that. And, and I was, there definitely was transferable skills. What's actually happened is that was a brutal time. And I did feel like I was quite behind, but now I have the variety you're able to draw on, but, it, but you know, it, it's hard to dangle that carrot in front of somebody, go through a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty and a hard, hard, tough time in terms of the commitment that's, that's going to be expected of you t- to your work. And, you know, what if you have kids or marriage, you know, it's very difficult to, to balance all of it. make sure you're having the income to, to learn a new skill and to be able to apply that in the future, but it is what you need to do. So I think education has to change. Yeah. And I think development within companies must change. Yeah is there must be sort of a, an almost, you've got to on, be constantly teaching your staff stuff. And, and especially when it comes to skills that, that are likely to be altered or replaced every few years. I think creativity is a huge factor as well. And it's something that I'm not convinced, certainly in this country, the current education system in any way nurtures. I think that there's a kind of social pressure for people to conform. And that actually mm-hmm. stems a lot of people's natural creativity. There is. I think the da- there are enormous dangers in, in forcing people to conform. I think you must force people to, to try to push the bounds of what they can do as much as possible. I think this is where one of the things that I think education's really failed on is, is, is GPAs and sort of 
now maybe that's not it's not the case everywhere they don't have exactly the same thing but it's mean that you, you've effectively set down the rules of the game to get the points to get to get the grade that is going to get you to the next stage but you're not learning to get to the next stage you're learning to get grade and so what happens is people are are their game you you game the system to get the results from it because your result is purely evaluated by that whereas it's not evaluated by breadth not doesn't evaluate adaptability because they are, those are much harder to yeah, evaluate exactly. so people aren't really being taught to do unless they teach themselves which is great if you've decided to teach yourself but if you you know perhaps naively but not unreasonably trusted the system to prepare you to teach you it is quite a betrayal and there's also a huge i think aspect in terms of inequality so i'm thinking in of the uk and in my lifetime that has become increasingly unequal so people's access to education their kind of choices about it all of that is is hugely affected by where they are within society in the first place let's right. really think of it in terms of how it might affect education and that would be really i mean for example, imagine for example if we had the opportunity to have a really high quality of, of tutor because it was software mm. and that could be given well, they, to yeah. huge numbers of people that could be game changing so something that was actually interactive because it was it was ai and where it could be potentially tailored for different types of learning behavior, different types of children's personalities, adults too. That to me is something where I don't know if this is in the world, I'll check. There might already be a company working on this. Well, what there is in the world, we know is there's AI that when you're on the phone to a major company's customer service line, that it it runs your data based on pre-existing knowledge of who you've called of to pay you with the best kind of person to give you to satisfy you and to address your concerns. Exactly. So that could be, as you say, used as a model for the kind of the kind of tutor that we. I think I can, I think I actually know the name of the company. I can even tell you about it, and then because I've mentioned this company before, but I forgot. But I just struck me as one of the, one of the most exciting things I'd, I'd ever heard. One of the best applications of it. Sort of strange, but. But, you know, there was somebody I was speaking to recently who was telling me about a company I think was called Yenpik, where what they're doing is similar in terms of customer service. They're filming people and they're using that film to then generate essentially a sales team. So it can be, again, a personalized, tailored message. And it means that that can be reused and it can be scaled to a degree that it couldn't be if it was a human team. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I work a lot on that in, 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 in when you, when, where can you bring in AI to scale things up? But the company's affinity, A-F-I-N-I-T-I. I think they're a unicorn. So it's they're not they're not, you know, they're they're pretty established. Through the unicorn of their CEO is is an is a pretty well established guy. But anyway, fascinating. The next so to keep yeah. us moving. What if AI learns the bad side of Microsoft's chatbot Tay, for example, learned how to make racial racial slurs just one day after its launch to Twitter. Now, that, the language thing there is a, not, to, not to downplay it, but there's something more cultural there than, I guess, deliberately malicious, if that makes sense. Okay, what uh, do you think? I wouldn't make that distinction. I think this is an area that fascinates me, which is bias, mm. which I know you have one of your points later on. To me, this is a perfect example of that. So depending on what data set the machine learning is trained on, that is going to potentially give us exacerbated problems or amplifying or amplified problems that we already have that we know that we have would you would you say this issue focuses then on it's where ai it thinks it's being logical and helpful i wouldn't frame it like that i would say the problem is is specifically data bias 
So the data set that they're usually using okay. is so biased to begin with. I'm thinking particularly of your, a lot of your um, listeners may have read this book. And if anyone hasn't, I recommend it highly. Invisible Women by Criado Perez. So that was a quite comprehensive look at essentially data bias in terms of gender. And it mm -hmm. was staggering. There were things in there that I hadn't realized were such a huge issue. Her point was that the data sets that were being used in a whole variety of areas were so biased to begin with that the outcomes were almost inevitably sexist. There were companies that were wow. using AI, for example, for hiring. And because it, those, those systems had been trained on data sets that were almost completely male. So in terms of their top management, the system ended up making more sexist decisions than a human would have. So they stopped using it. Can you remember an I example? Think, just, I'm just I not think it curious. was Amazon. And I think they stopped using it as a consequence. It might have been Microsoft. I forget which one of the big tech companies. Okay, but not some, like, okay. A company you wouldn't expect. No, on the contrary. I would say I would completely expect it because they have the resources to think, okay, we want to use better software. We want to optimize this system. And at the same time, they have the inherent data bias that is prevalent across the whole world. I mean, one of the problems with it is getting an unbiased data set. So getting a data set that is actually valid means that people would have to put effort into that in the first place. They'd also have to spot at the beginning that their data set is biased. And there is often nobody to actually do that within the organization. So it's only when they have the results later on that they spot a problem. Terrifying, really, in a way. But how, how long does it take? How long, do, how long does it take for, these, for the problems to be identified? I don't know what the exact timescale was. My guess is it would have been within a couple of years, I'm guessing. But then if you think of that in terms of the bit of ethics that particularly interests me, which is applied ethics, in that time, that means it would have affected hiring decisions. There would have been people who probably didn't get hired, who didn't get promotions, who may have been the best candidate. I bet that's the shame. I mean, that is, the, but that is the, the great shame of, of well, of, of trying to find candidates is you don't know. It's so hard to interpret who's a good candidate. Because you, because you need to know what's going, how to present yourself, but also how not to be, especially if you're coming cross culturally, how not to sort of trigger that sequence of of decisions to think that you are pushing in a direction that you don't, you don't even realize. It's just kind of endlessly complex. People finding each other. Yes, here. it's complicated. At the same time, I recommend Kahneman. So there is a brilliant outline of his Kahneman. system in John Lancaster's book yeah. about money, and. He has, I think it's a six or seven point scale. So he has a completely evidence-based way of recruiting that boils down to working out very clearly what the person actually needs to be able to do. And I think that's one of the tricky things. So a lot of the time with recruitment, people have a rough idea, but it's a bit like a design brief. So one of the difficult things is actually getting a good brief in the first place. A, a good brief is gold. You can do anything with a good brief and nothing with a bad one, no matter how detailed it is. <laughs> Okay. All right. So move on. This is a really big one, and we're gonna we're gonna start to touch on on a hot topic issue on warfare, killing people, corporal punish punishment. Is it okay to allow a computer to kill to make the decisions that lead to it? Several countries in the world have drones and pilotless planes equipped with weapons, so soldiers don't have to make the kill themselves. They can do it from trailers in wherever around the world and there's only you know one step away from the actual trigger being turned over to ai too there are those who believe the 
lack of human touch and war will make wars even less humane and killing people with machines might make soldiers feel less empathy to their enemies. So my, I would like to just start by sort of saying something about allowing AI to sort of take over killing decisions on a battlefield. So in the military, everything is of maximum utility. Decisions are taken. Now, tactical decisions will always be effectively the outcome of a commander trying to outfox another commander. You're, you're, you are making a guess as to what their actions are going to be. And you, are, you do that with probabilities, but you also do that not knowing the variability of other factors, such as the increasing uh, internal pressure that, you, that you're putting behind the scenes. Uh, just a million different things that you, you would not, never be able to get the data for. Not even if you had access to the places, to the enemy, you wouldn't be able to get that data. And to quantify that, I, I think this is sort of immediately, immediately you have enormous issues where, where it, it not only becomes far less humane, it'll miss clear, it's easy to deceive within data in terms of you can just hide amongst civilians. You'd have to make a calculus for dealing with that, which is incalculable based on well, who's a higher value loss and who isn't. It's sort of, I don't know why you would ever do it. If you're, if you, you know, from a military perspective, I think you, you've just got to be able to have that control. Um, and then, cause you wouldn't have any control over where it went. You wouldn't have any control over its outcome. You wouldn't have any, any more options as to how things can play. So that's just what I'm saying on that. Tell me, tell me I what you think. I think to me, this is a classic example of one of the aspects of the course that was most fascinating to me, which is that a lot of the time, mm -hmm. the technology doesn't change the ethics. So the innovation, the leap forward in technology doesn't change the ethical questions. So to me, the much more important question is, was it right to go to war in the first place? My mm -hmm. personal strong feeling is usually no. I don't think it's usually justified. You mentioned killing civilians potentially or those kind of rankings. Those kinds of things already happen. They've happened for so long. That kind of decision making has already been going on. I don't think it's about optimizing that kind of decision making. I think it's about asking the earlier questions, which is, is this, is this war the right thing to do in the first place? I think the answer is very rarely yes. I think you're right. I think it is very, very rarely yes. And I think there's something almost poisonous about them trying to retroactively apply decisions when you're within war itself, because it just, it leads to outcomes that are not 100% about the utility of what's going on, which seems to just drag things on and make them far worse for everybody and for a much wider group of people for a much longer time. And that seems to me to be what has happened in the past 50 years a yeah, lot, completely, actually. completely. And sort of it's led us to these, these strange circumstances where there are countries that just live under, uh, live under the shadow of two million drones. It's yeah. just madness because no one's put a soldier on the ground. I mean, it just, it, it's, it, it's like such an incredibly, incredible imbalance and, and utterly for political convenience because military utility has got none, nothing to do with military utility. It's clear it has not, nothing to do with it. You know, there's a reason wars are not run as assassination programs. It doesn't. You know, it's it, it it's about you know applying the use of force over a given mm. territory, you know, Faber. But like you know, if that's the de it's about that basically, or any other similar definition. No, that's a yeah, I agree. That is a great tragedy. It's well, why, why are we there? And if you're not there, in the if you're not there in the first place, that's the question. And then it's like, well, what decisions do you make to stop that happening? I think those are essentially yeah. political ones. So I feel very strongly yeah. in this country that despite 
all kinds of protests and objections and points where it was clear the majority of the population didn't support war. The, polit the political leaders at the time went ahead mm -hmm. with, it, with it. So it's, it was it's astonishing appalling to see. To see. It's very hard to know how to prevent that. Everybody, you know, everybody, so let's just talk, we're talking about Afghanistan and Iraq. Everybody understood Iraq, uh, Afghanistan and nobody understood Iraq. No, not really. And we kind of understood Syria, kind of. But, but yet we went into Libya, which sort of, no idea why we thought we were arming Yemen in this country still. But yes. And, uh, but then the interesting one is, yes, very, like we act sort of shocked that Crimea, that Crimea was taken. It's Russia's only year round deep water port that it doesn't freeze over. They weren't going to let it go. I mean, they just, they weren't. And it seemed, you're putting pressure on something where it has to go. And it's like, well, why didn't we? It's because utility has gone out the window. It's, it's now a question of being able to, what, what can you pose? What can you pretend? Which is almost so much worse than if you just let the generals figure it all out. You know? I mean, I would I, want to dial back further than that. I would not dare to be generals, yeah. ideally. I'm, in terms of my biases, I'm Fair deeply anti-war. So I think, I think the technology is, again, doing what it usually does, which is exacerbating existing, existing inequalities or existing problems. It's not really bringing up new it's ethical challenge, if you see what I mean. Fair enough. No, that's fair. I'd like to take a minute. I wanted to go sidetrack for a second. Can you tell me a bit about where your own philosophies come from, passed down, developed? Would you describe yourself as a pacifist? No, I think it's, I think it's problematic. So I wouldn't describe myself as a pacifist because I'm thinking Good purely on a, on a personal physical level. I believe in a right to self-defense. So if I start from that point... Mm -hmm then there are points when I think, no, violence might be the right option. I think, again, it's it becomes a problem with scale. So this may be a slightly naive perspective, but I think that there's a degree to which if it was one-to-one -one combat, if it's between roughly equal parties, there's a degree to which there is a sense, perhaps a false sense, that there's some kind of integrity there. And I think as soon as we had technology that was as sophisticated as a gun, we run into the kinds of problems that you were talking about, where it becomes something that's physically very easy and somebody may die as a consequence. I, I can't see any benefit in a war. I, again, I can take the self-defense point. So if there was a threat of invasion and people would then argue, well, how are you going to prevent threats of, of invasion? And my answer to that would be diplomacy. I would like to see a lot more diplomacy. I, so first of all, I agree with you there. I also think economic, joint economic interest is such an incredible, has so been so successful at, at preventing war as to be, you know, just miraculous, basically. Yeah. And and similarly, pol political systems that offer at least some accountability that is obvious also kind of automatically allow there to be as an immediate tension lower. The EU and, is a great um, example of that to me. Yeah, I think the EU is a good example of that, definitely. But it's in, what it's interesting, so I'm, I, so my, I have many, many war dead in my family in lots of different wars. And for lots of different reasons and in lots of different functions. So not to, but what, and the way that I've received that is not in only one instance directly from, you know, someone who, who was engaged in, in any way or that because it didn't last very long. But, and so I have a very, I have a very positive view of what some of the traditions can be. I actually have quite, I, I have no confusion about 
the horror of war, mm. if that makes sense. And I've also spent enough time in strange parts of the world that you see enough to understand what, what it sort of means. And I have a big problem, and I've told you this before, with uh, people taking up causes of, of faraway places that they don't understand that are finally stable. And then they don't even know that the fact that they've done that for their own ego or to put something, as far as I can see, just to make themselves sound controversial has led to the death of quite a few people there. And I've sort of, I know, and I'm trying to be nonspecific, but, you know, I've, I've not heard from people again who are in towns where stuff happened because a bunch of Western journalism students couldn't yeah. stop tweeting, you know, it, it, and, and it never needed to happen. There was never going to be another outcome. It's like, it, but because at the moment it's, it's sort of a negotiated piece. But my view on, on things that is, is I have a lot of faith in actual uh, military, very high-end military systems because it is one of the very few things that has shown to actually temper the horrors of war when you're actually in, in place. Because I do believe that there's going to be an application. But I do agree. With, I, I think you, you create a situation where it doesn't have to happen is, is, is really the ideal thing. And as much as the EU, and I am pro-EU, I voted for Remain, but I've accepted that that's not what happened with our country. And I also, I, I give credence to the arguments of, of those who wanted to leave. Not, not the sort of hashtag stuff, but the, the real arguments of disenfranchisement and so on. But I, I do think the EU was able to skirt that a lot, frankly, because the UK was willing to do things a lot more publicly for a long time. Yeah, for a long time. And, and I think that, which is very convenient for them. And I think they'll continue to be able to do that. But this comes down to what can we then use AI for to actually stop that happening? It would be interesting to optimise diplomacy, wouldn't it? It would yes, be interesting. Would. I'm not aware of anybody studying this, but there must be somebody who is studying what actually works. Yeah, I think you, I think you, you can. I think you can find data sets as well on human behaviour. work on negotiation. Uh, That's fascinating. Like, There's good work on negotiation. Sorry? I've read that that's fascinating yeah well i think that would be the the number one benefit is is figure that out because they need to figure out if that's what they want is actually what they (laughs) they want and whether they're going to say no no matter what and that's what the and that's what the negotiation is i always think there's going to be a point of of agreement there'll be something in the diagram that that people overlap on and that you can then get some kind of some kind of ground if you if you know they want to make a show of saying no and they're not going to let any other outcome happen, no matter what you say on one yeah. topic, you let them have it and then give them the, the one yeah. where you can go, like it's yeah. do both. Give them the public face and then the practical one. Interesting. Okay. Just one final thing on the, on the was, was like human touch more makes, yeah, less sort of make soldiers feel less empathy for their enemies. I'm not sure because people are getting plenty of PTSD from going to trailers and murdering people from drones. So, I, I, I'm not sure that there's credence to that because I think they do know what they're doing. And I think, you know, if the solution is to get a kid to do it so they don't answer conscious of it, then uh, I, I we're so far. It's like... It means um, we're asking completely so, uh, the wrong questions of that wonderful answer. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, what if, the, what if AI goes rogue? Okay, this kind of comes back to... We were saying in the beginning about the, the AI that picked up racial slurs. And I guess what, what I was trying to get at is does the AI pick up a reflection of horrors within a data set and push that out? Does it unwittingly pick it and then expand on it and then take it further and further and further? Or does it turn against us? What is the, I, I don't know what we're talking about here. Whether, are we just talking about it going rogue as in 
it makes thinks it keeps making essentially the right all decisions. three scenarios are possible. So the classic one is Nick Bostrom's mm. one about something which is designed to make paper clips that just goes completely out of control, and that's its complete focus. And we just end up inundated with paper clips. And there are lots of kind of obvious things people can say against that. In terms of his actual argument, I think his argument is valid that, as, you, as I said, all three of those possible scenarios could take place. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I just wonder. Anyway, okay, next one. Yeah, going rogue. Going rogue is a weird Well, Anyway, look, keeping control over AI is another what-if moment. There is a fear that one day... AI will surpass our intelligence. And this is kind of, I guess, where a lot of the, a lot of the sci-fi themes come from. Can you tell me a bit about that? Is that possible? Because <laughs> you, you, you go first. You tell me the applications. Well, and I'll my view on that is a straightforward yes. I think that as humans, we're so in love with the idea of our own intelligence, we tend to think of it as some kind of peak thing. It is not some kind of peak. I don't mm. know if you read the fascinating book, Other Minds. Uh, it's uh, not one not. I recommend because it's it's just so enjoyable. But it was about. Oh. I should really do what podcast hosting <laughs> say. Yeah, yeah, great, great. every time. Carry on. I am. I am. I am making a list about yeah. octopus intelligence. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think I know what you mean. Essentially, I, I one of the reasons that humans have dominated the planet is that we live longer. So, if we're talking about the measure of intelligence, the octopus could give us a good run for it for our money. They just have a very short lifespan. They would mm. never be in a position to threaten us as a species or not as far as we know now. So the idea that our intelligence, as I said, is some kind of pinnacle, is something that we're very invested as a species in thinking. Almost all our religious texts, those perspectives, put us at the top of a kind of pile. Even in terms of evolution, there's a tendency to think of us as the kind of end point. So the idea that something could overtake us in terms of intelligence, I find that very easy to believe. A friend of mine used to joke that the internet is already such a thing that it would be impossible for one single human or even a collective of humans to switch that off now. And I think if you think of a simpler thing like electricity, imagine trying to dial back to that technology now. Imagine trying to say, okay, we're just not going to use electricity anymore. We've decided it's a bad idea. Even if we had yeah. global collective agreement on that, how would we actually enforce it? So I think the idea that AI could surpass our intelligence fairly rapidly, entirely possible, but the idea that it can surpass our intelligence, I don't see any strong arguments against that. Well, fair enough. I, I think there's there's the question here was, does it just simply add a complementary tool to our intelligence? I think that is kind of the the question. I mean, what, what, it might what be at that think? level now. So I think there's a good sense that, yes, it's a complementary tool. It's something Google emphasise a lot, that it's, it's, it's enhancing. It's like a kind of collaborator. It's going to make all your work better. A lot like the thing you said at the beginning about articles, so that it would enable somebody to do better work. So a kind of optimization software, essentially. The leap to me from yeah. that potentially going way past that, I don't feel that's a big leap. I'm very aware of Moore's law in this context. I can, I can think of a tech conference a couple of years ago where I was astonished at some of the things AI could do then. So things that I thought were completely feasible, I just didn't know they were already in the world. And I think that sensation of the kind of the tide rising, I think that just that gets faster. I mean, I taking want- a sci-fi kind of view, I'm in favor of rights for robots. I don't think that it's something which is... Okay, so do early. you think Absolutely. robots should get rights? Okay, then here's the other question is, do we become cyborgs or do... 
do we just get replaced by robots? Interesting. There may not be a kind of hard line. It might get to a point. I'm thinking of Blade Runner inevitably in these kind of scenarios. And it's one of the reasons why Rights okay. for Robots appeals to me, because I think it may be the case that it, it's not easy to tell where on that spectrum somebody is. Yeah, I do think that that is interesting. And I, I, I think we, we're going to integrate. I mean, there's the kind of technology where somebody the... can operate, say, a prosthetic arm. So essentially their thought is, is yeah. operating that. Well, augmented reality is, is where we're, we're going straight into that. And get, we're already there, actually, really, since we had smartphones, yeah. since we had laptops. I mean, it's just like we're extending our capabilities in our capacity to to project to the world from from within us by something that is okay it's not act, physically attached to us but it, it will be it can be and it is as good as it is pretty much so um it is very much the next next step and that's I, i'm very much in that camp i feel that that, that is clearly where, and we, where we are really um, and i think you know this solution with how do i type properly on a phone i need to use a keyboard i need to do this becomes well how do i just get the words you know out you know onto onto the onto the keypad in the first place and it just yeah i think it's yeah i think we're get we're getting nearly there i wonder where we'll be in 10 years it's so far ahead in terms of tech i wouldn't want to make any predictions i mean if you no, think 10 years either. back that's quite unnerving exactly so exciting though but I just love to look at the, if you jump on Amazon and just look at the startups that they're pushing and just wonder. And it's like, I bought a pair of Bluetooth headphones that lasted me two hours, super comfortable and had a massive, like, and, but I didn't have to charge the power bank for days, super slick, synced immediately together. They paired it and it was so easy to deal with. And now within like, you know, five months later, they were, <laughs> this was standard and they were the standard bearers for it. And it was just, uh, exactly. yeah, just great to see. So that kind of covered us, should we treat AI as a machine or something more humane? And then we go, lastly, into bias here. Bias by AI is not something new. AI acts on data. You've touched this. The data is inputted by people who are biased, or the data itself is biased, then there's a big chance the AI, AI will act biased. Well, we, you, we covered this pretty well. I mean, this is yep. kind of where we began. Is uh, This is how it comes out with racial slurs. This is how it comes out with awful decisions. It's all rather the same thing. As usually it points to social change, to my mind. So I think that we can't expect the technology to essentially solve political problems, despite what I was saying about optimised diplomacy. I think essentially we have yeah. to fix those problems ourselves. And whether they are problems they are or not, much. so depending on somebody's, again, political views, they may or may not think these are an issue. So to my mind, they're huge injustices. They are issues of major inequality. They need to be addressed. That isn't something that there's a global consensus yeah. on. If there was, we would have a very different world. So I feel that's an area where we need to put a lot of energy. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Okay, well, look, I think we just got this final bit here, sorry. The same ethical questions above were also raised by the World Economic Forum and Forbes. And then here's a, a quote from the EPRS. What does the EPRS exactly stand for? EPRS. Come on. European Parliamentary Research Service. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. All right. Just because the issues above persist doesn't mean the world now has stopped developing AI. In fact, companies are now using the ethical questions above to develop more advanced AI with tools to hinder further issues. Okay, great news. For example, the Future of Life Institute in the US is developing a protocol to ensure the development of AI is beneficial to humankind with a focus on safety and existential risk 
autonomous weapons arm races, human control of AI, and the potential dangers of advanced general slash strong or super intelligent AI. Many private companies are donors to this institute, including Tesla and Skype. I feel a mixture of encouragement and fear from that. I think it depends what they mean, and it's not the clearest statement to my yeah. mind. I'm saying I'm it's standing in favour of regulation, yeah. so I want there to be regulation saying that we want AI to be transparent, that we want safety to be an absolutely intrinsic thing in any kind of development. I'm not quite sure that's mm -hmm. what that document is saying. No, I, I, I think what it's saying is... You, you, you yes, can't say we which goes try. back to your point you made earlier about the kind of press play response that people often give to questions of where people are concerned. So there's a question about safety or there's yeah. a question about ethics and there's a kind of standard, this is the answer. And it's, it's not necessarily very well thought it's, out and it's as if they think it's a tick box. But it's, it's if they think it's a tick, bo tick box, they heard their TA said in university and they think that that makes it an acceptable answer. And this is why the, the, the lack of study of it, you know, AI in order to basically just been used as a tool to get a grade. And so therefore follow these steps, get a grade, agree with the TA, get a grade and then move on. And it's, and then, and then you hear people answer, you know, when tech companies are in trouble, they give an ethical lot. So that sounds like that. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, I got it right. No, <laughs> yo, you didn't. And that you think you did is what the problem is. You genuinely can't, yeah. Uh, and, and it's quite worrying when you hear that. So, you know, you want to believe that people are right, but it is risky. It is too risky to to believe that fully. I almost would prefer an acknowledgement that there's an element of it yes. that, that is going to go more wrong. honest. It, it's uh, yeah. in my mind, for example, for somebody yeah. to say they don't know when they don't know. It's entirely valid in lots of situations. Yeah. I think they also need... No, I'm just going to say, say, I think sorry. to me, this go is ahead. an area where journalism plays such a vital role you're in a position to ask the yeah. right questions to ask difficult questions to essentially help hold people accountable absolutely and i think one of the reasons why i founded my company was because i want those journalists to be able to do that as much as possible so that they can you meet the publishing demands by engaging someone like us so we'll do all the stuff that takes up so much time so you can do the highest value stuff so you're asking the right questions you're reporting on the right things and oh and same for your brand you know if you're you know whatever but I think having the failsafe in there and having the questioning in there is really the most important thing. Anyway, do you have any, would you like to give any closing? I think the, the key things to me that are issues at the moment are data bias. And also the thing I was saying about regulation, mm -hmm. that I think I would like to see a stronger global consensus on things like safety and transparency. I think there are far too many companies which are kind of saying, well, we don't really understand fully how this works or we're not going to expose that because it's commercial and that is going to be increasingly an issue as we start to run into problems which i think is inevitable because it's the nature of a new technology absolutely right well i've learned a great deal from speaking to you thank you thank so you much for joining me on the podcast i think we'll have you back absolutely we'll have you back we'll have you back maybe for to be confirmed but i think there's another ethics discussion to be had perhaps in some time about i think tech in general and certainly we may do one about languages. We'll see. We'll see. Languages will still be fascinating. Absolutely. Uh, Mr. B, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. And stay tuned. Listen to the next one. Tell me if you think I should speak less, more, or just get on. I think that's a fair closer. Okay. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.